1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state
0: law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio.
1: This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. We won last weekend for the first time in five games, which feels especially excellent. Also excellent is that my co-host, Alan Williams, is back in the studio with yours truly, James Virgilio, after a week traveling the world abroad. Alan, get us caught up on what you were doing last week and why we had to have Caleb Sturgis sit in for you.
0: Well, it was nice that Caleb could join you. I loved hearing his insights. But I was traveling around Eastern Europe a little bit. I was at a conference in Budapest. Which is an incredible city. Loved it. Also got the chance to go over and visit Bratislava, Slovakia. Cool little town. But it was a weird experience for me this past week. Uh, I didn't have internet most of the time, and I would leave the house in the morning, not knowing what was going to happen that day with our coaching search, and get back home in the evening and frantically check Twitter to see if any news had broken and if we had hired anybody. And it, it was kind of a surreal experience and being disconnected like that for most of the day. But uh, yeah, glad to be back. Uh, James, you did a fantastic job last week leading everybody through that stuff. So thanks for carrying my slack.
1: Hey, it was good and fortunate that we had Caleb on. And speaking of Caleb, maybe some fortune for him in some unfortunate circumstances with the Eagles kicker, Jake Elliott, getting a potential concussion. Maybe Caleb was on our podcast last week and now kicking field goals for the NFL leading Eagles this weekend. Who knows? We will see. Alan, you may have been one of the only people in all of Eastern Europe to care about the Chip Kelly coaching search and saga, but that's obviously completely the opposite. It seems like Chip Kelly mania has taken over Gainesville. It's really kind of taken over the news cycle to a certain extent. You can't escape it on Twitter, on ESPN or anywhere else. There is a daily discussion on chip kelly culminating with chip kelly answering questions on esp on sunday and of course before we get into this i want to set the table for what's going on in this episode this is fsu week which would normally mean that we'd spend a considerable amount of time breaking down the film talking about the game as i think all of you know we've sort of scrapped that model for this season and i think for good reason Uh, assuming almost all of these coaches will be gone. The schematics of what is going on within each game don't really matter. It's already relatively well-known that even if we were to win this game against Florida state, we will not be accepting a bowl game invite unless something truly crazy happens. So what's happening on the field each Saturday is not important in the big picture, but there are certainly things that are occurring that are important, and we're going to pluck those narratives out. We are going to talk about the UAB game, and we're also going to talk about the Florida State game, as well as the national games and some other games. But I think first and foremost, Alan, what's on all of our minds is this this Chip Kelly saga. You're following it from afar. I'm following it right here closely. It reached a fever pitch on Sunday. By the time you listen to this podcast, which could be any time this Thanksgiving week, Who knows what the information might be. We're recording this as of 2 p.m. on Monday. So keep that in mind with what our comments are going to be. Uh, But Alan, Chip Kelly, Sunday, UF Jet takes off, flies with the admins to New Hampshire. I'm getting text messages from my friends at the game as we're playing New Hampshire in basketball, Chip Kelly's alma mater. And hey, the UF admins actually aren't here. This is a real story. Then I'm getting a tweet and posts about how we're signing him and it's done. And then we come back with with no Chip Kelly. And here we are on Monday, wrinkle in the system. UCLA fires Jim Mora and they make it known they want to talk to Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly sort of makes it known he wants to talk to them. And now the best thing I can say, Alan, before I get your thoughts on this is I feel like Ron Burgundy, an anchorman, when he's sitting in the glass phone booth and he's accepting a call and he can't speak, <laughs> and he's melting down, and he's in a glass, glass box of, of emotion. No, wait, wait, let me say something. Let me say something.
0: <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I don't, under, I didn't understand a one word you said.
1: Ron, ah. are you okay?
0: Run. <laughs> Ron, wh- where are you? Oh, I'm in a glass case of emotion.
1: And that's where I've been. I've sent that gif 30 times on Sunday because it's like, I can't really take it anymore. I've tried to control myself from not allowing me to think that Chip Kelly is going to be the guy. But... Now it's like, oh, please, don't tell me that he's he's not going to sign or that he's not going to be with us or that he's going to go to UCLA That this saga is going to continue. And it's just sort of madness. It's sort of madness. So before we kind of break down what we actually think is happening and the information that we have, I would just want to get your raw thoughts, Alan, on this process, because you are viewing it from afar. Do you feel the same yeah. sort of emotional up and down and and connected like frustration slash hope slash fear that, that maybe we're feeling here in the States?
0: Yes. And I think in a different kind of way, like when I got, um, home, well, I guess back to Budapest on Sunday night and I'm catching up on Twitter and I'm reading all this stuff about, um, Chip Kelly and we're flying to the thing and everything. It's, uh, it's crazy. And it's weird. It's in these punctuated moments for me where it's like hits me like all at once. And I'm catching up on Twitter. I'm like, okay, we're, they, you know, they took a plane they're going, they're going to sign them. And then it's like, nope, they came back. No announcement. And I, the coaching search thing is so crazy to me. I love that everyone on the internet is an amateur detective. The whole flight aware app, if you don't know, you can track of, I guess, any flight from anywhere. And so people monitor these flights out of these small college towns, going to places where coaches might be and what restaurants are they eating at? There was a John Gruden sighting that turned out to be fake at a restaurant that Peyton Manning was in. It's it's just chaotic and crazy. You don't know what to trust or what to believe. Um, but it certainly is fun, except for the really stressful part that Chip Kelly might actually be our coach, but we're waiting and waiting and waiting. It, it is enough to drive you insane. I, I can just imagine you sitting there in Gainesville in a glass case of emotion.
1: <laughs> so the real question now, Alan, is like, what's actually going on behind the scenes. There's a lot of information for those of you that subscribe on the message boards that are out there and you have the VIP access, you're familiar with this information. If you don't subscribe to those things, you don't have friends who subscribe to those things, maybe you don't know. And so we'll give you what some of the narratives are. And then I think Alan, you and I will just sort of pull the BS meter out and say, does this make sense? Does this not make sense? And how do we feel about it? And the first one I want to present to you is the one that is the most recent. The most recent logic behind why Chip Kelly is not our coach today, Monday, uh, after we flew to meet with him yesterday, Sunday. And here is how this story goes. Essentially, mm-hmm. Chip Kelly is still getting paid $6 million by the San Francisco 49ers. He is also getting paid 500 or so thousand dollars by the Philadelphia Eagles, both of which he got fired by in the NFL. The way the NFL works is they offset the salaries against each other. So when Chip Kelly took the 49ers job, the Eagles contract presumably, presumably gets whittled down to whatever the difference is between what he was getting paid in San Francisco and what he was getting paid in Philly. So it lessens the burden on the previous team. So the narrative goes like this. Florida has not signed Chip Kelly yet because the 49ers owe him six million dollars. If he waits until after the Florida State game, and Florida does not go to a bowl game, and we make Chip Kelly our head coach, he will be the coach for the 2018 Florida Gators. There is no way the 49ers could argue that he in fact was coach at any time during 2017. This is a very important legal caveat because it would mean that the 49ers would pay Chip Kelly the full $6 million that they owe him, which is certainly in his best interest, and that Florida would not have to get involved at all with that storyline. That is the prevailing story. The UCLA storyline and Chip Kelly doing his own due diligence are all things that do not scare the people that are really strongly believing in that narrative. Alan, your thoughts on that being the reason why Chip Kelly as of Monday, is not Florida's coach.
0: I mean, it's certainly a compelling case. The legal part of all of this, especially when it comes to buyouts, is so intricate, and I think you you do have to have a law degree to parse those details. I don't know. Um, I'm kind of 50-50 on this. The UCLA thing is certainly compelling to me. Uh, I think most people think of Chip, Chip Kelly as a West Coast guy. And there's a certain faction of people, especially national writers, that really only see him in that part of the country, in that culture, where he's free to be kind of a little bit different and maybe, I don't know, work in a way that he feels comfortable without a lot of pressure and maybe not the grind that is the SEC. So people all along have been... I guess shipping him to UCLA ever since Jim Mora's season began to collapse there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's real that UCLA fired him when they did. They had still had to pay a $12 million buyout. UCLA is notoriously frugal in their athletic department. I don't think they would have pulled the trigger when they did, if they weren't really serious about trying to hire Chip Kelly. Now I don't know what Chip Kelly thinks about that job, but I think there's something to that, at least in theory. Now maybe he could have no actual interest when it comes To comparing those two jobs, but it does give me pause. Um, If he's as contrarian as people seem to paint him, then that could be enticing to him not to have to deal with the fishbowl that is SEC football.
1: And let's walk through that UCLA piece of the story first, and then I'm going to walk back to my thoughts on the 49ers' salary. UCLA, as you just mentioned, historically does not do the things they just did this past weekend primarily pay a $12 million buyout to a coach they could have waited just one more week or maybe even a, maybe even two or three more weeks, whatever their deadline was to when the season rolled over on the contract, and I don't know when that is, and save themselves several million dollars on firing Mora. But they didn't. They fired him. Now, there's two options here. It's either that the athletic director has gone rogue and has made a horrifically bad decision to spend millions of dollars and get no reward for it. Or, or, the much more likely scenario is feelers were put out to a free agent coach in Chip Kelly, and Chip Kelly indicated he had interest. Those are really the only two options that are there. It's highly likely that option two was what happened, which prompted UCLA to then go to their board and say, hey, Chip could be leveraging us, Chip may not actually take this job, but Chip is saying he's interested and he will listen. Therefore, it's worth the 3 or 4 or $5 million to take the risk on getting Chip Kelly. That then becomes a reasonable gamble. So because of that, I'm going to throw option one away. That's what gets you fired as an athletic director. And I'm going to say option two is what it was, which means we have to assume as Florida fans that Chip is interested in UCLA. A narrative I find troubling is Florida fans have a tremendous overconfidence in our own program. Why would Chip ever want to go to UCLA or Florida? It doesn't matter that Florida a better job on paper than UCLA. That doesn't make a difference to Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly is going to choose what he prefers. And you mentioned some of those storylines, Alan, that get tagged with him. He'd rather be a guy in a bigger city like LA where he's not the sole attraction. He would rather be at a school that doesn't care that much about football because he's not stuck having to glad hand the boosters. He would rather be in a place on the West Coast where there's more eccentric people. There's not Southerners. It's not religion. Now, we don't really know those things to be true. Chip Kelly himself has never made those statements. He's talked about how he doesn't like recruiting and how he does not like glad handing boosters. But on the flip side, the story of Chip Kelly is a guy who went to the NFL because he wanted to compete against the best. So those two narratives are competing with each other. Now, that's, that's the first package. The second package is this 49ers salary situation. It's very tricky, and I've talked to my friends who are attorneys, at least in the realm of contracts. It's impossible without looking at the contracts to know. This is why no one knows. This is why it's pure speculation. What exactly would trigger the 49ers to challenge this monetary base? You would have to assume that Florida's attorneys and Chip Kelly's own attorneys have looked at this if we're to believe the story and say that let's wait until next week, This is a much better situation, in which case Florida admins sort of know that Chip's going to sign. Chip knows he's going to sign, and everyone's kind of waiting, to which I present this problem, Alan. This same situation almost exactly happened with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers when Chip Kelly was at at, uh, Oregon. Essentially the same thing. Ink's not dry on the paper. Everything's ready to roll. He's going to go to Tampa Bay. It's a done deal. He didn't. He stayed in Oregon one more year before going to Philly. So Chip has been unpredictable in the past. I certainly think that him taking the Florida job is likely, but it's not a slam dunk at this point in time. And that's why I'm in this glass box of emotion is I really want Chip Kelly on this very podcast. A couple of weeks ago, I put him as my number two guy and said he wasn't number one solely because I didn't know how likely it really was. And now he's my number one. As I maintained last week, you heard from Caleb that Chip Kelly is a great guy in the, in the views of, of, of Chip Kelly, I mean, uh, Caleb Sturgis, and that others in the NFL that have played for Chip think the same thing, and that a lot of the stories about him sort of get misconstrued through a variety of, of methods and scenarios. And there's this narrative about Chip not being good in the NFL, which I think is frankly not true. He took a 4-12 and 12 Eagles team and went 10-6, made the playoffs, won a playoff game, went 10-6 the second year and missed the playoffs in a quirky seeding scenario, then became the GM in which he was a horrifically bad GM. That, you can say, tanked the Eagles roster, horrible roster management, got himself fired. Chip Kelly, the coach, solid. Chip Kelly, the GM, not so good. Chip Kelly's never going to be a gem in college football. It's not the way that it works. I have no concerns about that. So to me, Chip Kelly is still my top choice. It's the guy I really, really want. It's the guy I'm going to be very sad if we somehow don't get him. Now, Alan, the question I have to you is Chip Kelly was not on your top five list at the time. (laughs) I had to make sort of a compelling argument that you gave me like a tip of the cap and said, hey, those are interesting points. I'm thinking about that now. Walk us through why Chip Kelly maybe wasn't on your radar then. And and is he a guy that you want now? I mean, I haven't even asked you that question yet. Is he the guy you want or would you rather see us not get Chip Kelly?
0: So the reasons for me not even placing him on my top five list is that I felt it was a little out of the realm of possibility um, for some of the reasons I mentioned kind of the culture around chip Kelly, at least his narrative, like, you know, that he wouldn't want to be even in college again, that he doesn't like recruiting or kind of dealing with boosters. Those are the things you have to do at a big time program. Um, him being a West coast guy, all of these things, I just felt like, we were just chasing windmills a little bit like Tennessee fans are with John Gruden, that they're obsessed with John Gruden and maybe he gets hired there and I'll be shocked, but feels like they're chasing that pipe dream and they just can't get away from it. And I didn't want to just follow down that path and be like, I really want Chip Kelly. I really want Chip Kelly when there was real, no real hope of him coming here. Plus, you know, we had to figure in the NCAA sanctions, um, which you and Caleb discussed last week, providing maybe a, a, a narrative on that that would lead us to consider him more than we would in the past, you know, plus the old administration versus the new administration. That was a big question mark. So I just didn't think he was really a realistic candidate. Okay. Now let's put him on the map. He's obviously a realistic candidate. We've offered him the job apparently. And he goes right to number one to me. I do have some concerns, but I think I do with every candidate, but he offers such a huge upside we could win a national championship in year two not to say that that we should be favored we should expect that but that's a possibility immediately florida becomes the news in every story whether we're winning or losing um i think it would be incredible for our program and yes there's obviously potential for him to flame out and bust out or maybe leave after a little bit for the nfl again but I think you take those chances um, if you're hiring a guy with Chip Kelly's pedigree. So he's number one for me. I think a close second is still Scott Frost. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, But Chip Kelly is the most accomplished person we could hire. And the reason he's available is these kind of quirky moments in history that lend itself to someone of his stature being available. It's kind of like Urban Meyer going to Ohio state. Normally a guy like that is not in the market. When you fire your coach, unexpectedly like they did for ncaa infractions you don't have a two-time national championship coach just sitting there not doing anything chip kelly is of that pedigree and of that stature and i think it's obvious that we'd have to hire him if he checks all of the marks and we're satisfied with some of the potential red flags out there so for me i don't know that i'm as maybe crazed as you are at this moment but my hopes are up and i would be thrilled at the hire and really disappointed if this falls through.
1: So there are other candidates than Chip Kelly. And as you mentioned, Chip is my, my number one, you know, Chip went 46 and seven in college football, 33 and three in the pack at the time, 10 now 12. And he wound up going to four straight BCS bowls and played in the national title game ranking in the top 10 in a total offense every single year. The guy is perfect for this Florida job if we can seal the deal. But assuming something goes wrong and my glass box of emotion shatters and I, like Ron Burgundy, <laughs> have just a difficult moment in life where I'm searching for Baxter and nothing makes sense, who then can reorient my world? Well, Scott Frost is the obvious guy. We both love Scott Frost. The Scott Frost and Nebraska room rumors are super hot. They have been hot. It seems like that's a very likely situation. I don't buy for a second. He's staying at UCF. I, I just cannot see a realistic scenario where that happens. Assuming the Nebraska job comes open, Alan, is that foolish for me to think that is there any chance for Scott Frost to get back into this thing? Is it possible that he, he decides he wants to really listen to Florida's offer if we wait another week?
0: Yeah. So he's my next choice. And here's my a little bit, of my fear of taking a big swing at someone like Chip Kelly, which I think if you're Florida, you want to take a big swing. If this drags on and we lose a chance at Scott Frost and then Chip Kelly doesn't come, that'll just be a kick in the teeth followed by a kick in the crotch. You know, I mean, I think he's the best available candidate other than Chip Kelly. And he even has some advantages over Chip. Now, you go to a place like UCF and and you have to think this is a stepping stone. Now, some people have said he loves it, UCF. What if he doesn't want to leave at some point you're going to leave and there's never going to be a pair of jobs open like Nebraska and Florida. So, Florida would be your, you know, strategic most highly valued position and Nebraska would be a job you would take because your heart is in it and you feel a a tug to a place. There's never going to be a pair of jobs like that open again. So if he doesn't leave now, he would never leave. Like I guess he's at UCF forever. So you have to leave if those two jobs are on the table. Now, maybe he doesn't want to go to Nebraska, and maybe Chip Kelly comes to Florida, and maybe he does stay. But if both those jobs are open, I can't imagine a scenario where he stays at UCF, unless he's just like, I'm, I'm at UCF, this is my place for the next 10 years, which doesn't really seem, I don't know, all that realistic considering how he's crafted his coaching, coaching career so far.
1: And by the accounts we've heard, I happen to believe that we went after Scott Frost first, of course, through intermediaries, and Scott Frost was lukewarm at best, if not indicating that Nebraska would be more interesting to him, which would be a very normal response. I don't think we necessarily shut the door on that, but I think that's when we then approached Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly got very serious, and now, like you mentioned, Alan, we are appropriately taking the big swing on ship. But now let's go and play a little discussion or play a game or whatever you want to call this on candidates moving up or down. So in my top three, I had Matt Campbell. I had Fuente and I had Gundy. Those are rounding out my three, four, five, and you had something very similar. So I think for me, I'm going to name the first candidate that's moving up to me is, is Mike Norvell at Memphis. The same questions I had for him remain. But he capped off a 66-45 basketball score win over another rising coach, Chad Morris's SMU, on Saturday to clinch their conference championship. I believe they're now eight or nine and one. And he now is moving upwards for me. And here's the reason why. There's no financial hurdle to get Mike Norvell like there is to get guys that I really like, like Matt Campbell, for example, which is a significant financial hurdle. Or or Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech. There's a significant financial hurdle there. And then, of course, Mike Gundy is your kind of classic floor guy that we mentioned. So for me, I think I would put a guy like Norvell in the same bubble now as Gundy. Uh, originally, I had him a tier below. And and that doesn't mean I hired Norvell over Gundy. And I know Gundy just lost this past weekend in a, in a loss to Kansas State where they didn't play defense yet again. But there's arguments for either one of those guys for different reasons. We're not going to cover those today. We sort of covered them on the original podcast about this. But that's my biggest mover for me on the way up. I'm going to mention another guy that keeps getting talked about that we, you and I both erased off our list early is Charlie Strong. If Charlie Strong were to somehow become the coach of Florida, which I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think Strickland has an interest to do that. I would be in a low place, a very low place. That seems like a really poor fit in the wrong hire. So for me, Charlie Strong was already down, but he's way off my list and out. And since he's getting a lot of mention, I'd keep him there. And lastly, I want to mention a guy in Bob Stoops. I think Bob Stoops is very seriously retired. But in the event that you miss on Chip Kelly and you miss on Scott Frost, your next call, in my opinion, has to be to Bob Stoops. And then you begin sort of the Mike Norvell and the Mike Gundy kind of conversations. Now, who do you have moving up or down on your stock list?
0: Yeah, Norvell has continued to be a guy that's intriguing to me. That was a really nice win, and I don't want to peg too much on a win or a loss. You know, it's like not like I think you look at Mike Gundy; he loses a game to Kansas State, and it's like, okay, we're not going to hire him. He's too much of a body of work. Now, with a guy like Norvell, it does move up more or less because you have so little data on him. He's a guy that continues to impress me. I mean, obviously, he's super young, so this would be a very much a Mike White kind of hire. Where you're projecting so much for him i I wouldn't hate hiring him. Um, I think that's a certain path, and i I'm very intrigued by it, but could hugely blow up. Charlie Strong, to me, he wouldn't even be on my list. It would be basically everybody I know that I want to hire has said no. And instead of taking a chance, like a huge, huge, like Ron Zook level gamble, I'm going to hire Charlie Strong because I think he will do a solid job. I can't imagine that's the thinking for Scott Strickland, considering the way he's gone about this process. And Charlie Strong, I, you just have to look at that Texas tenure. It's the exact same job, essentially, resource wise, everything else. We've talked about it. I. I continue, yeah, you see things that we've talked to him, reached out to him, which I don't know if that's true at all. Um, But I'm not buying it as realistic. And if it did happen, I think that'd be a major defeat. It would be, I would definitely say we lost this round of coaching hiring and we're basically just punting till we can hire somebody else, which in the modern era of college football is not something you want to do. You can get away with that in the 1950s. You can't get away with that in 2017.
1: Yeah, that feels like a football death sentence to me, it's, and it's not. But that's how harsh – that's just – that's what it feels like. This is eight years now. Six of seven years, we finished below 100 in offense. Uh, it's a style mismatch. It's a guy who flamed out at Texas. It's it's so many things that would be wrong. We've already covered that. And so I think to put the bow back on this conversation now, and it sounds like obviously you and I are lockstep, that Chip Kelly is the number one target. Scott Frost would be second. It sounds like Scott Frost is leaning towards Nebraska as of this day on Monday. And that Chip Kelly is probably leaning towards us, if not the deals all but done, as of this Monday. Next Monday, after all of our bellies are full with our Thanksgiving goodness, it could be a totally different story. That's both the beauty and the frustration of a football coaching search. It's certainly more fun, though, Alan, to follow this than it is to follow the actual football team itself. (laughs)
0: Yeah, let's talk about that game. Uh, We're not gonna spend a ton of time on this, but we did want to mention a few things. Now, James, as you and uh, Caleb talked about this, he actually predicted somewhat of a decent win for the Gators. Did you think we were capable of a game like this? I know you didn't predict it, but was this even on your radar?
1: It was, it was far, far away on my radar. If you're looking at like the green screen radar, Top Gun style, I'm like a blip way far off of it moving very slowly. Like That's about where it was. <laughs> For Caleb, it was obviously a lot closer to the center. Made a very nice prediction. Almost nailed the score uh, even rather exactly. But I was encouraged by this in the micro sense. I don't think all of a sudden we're going to come out against Florida State and look like a great football team. But this was a team against South Carolina that battled, which we talked about. They played hard. And this was a team against UAB that played very hard. And the fans came to support them. I was, I'm going to say, shocked. And I mean that word literally. I was shocked by the amount of fan support at the game on Saturday. I know Randy Shannon commented on it in his press conference. He commented on how Florida fans aren't fickle. He's doing a really nice job being a brand ambassador especially for a guy who has no ties to the University of Florida, aside from a professional job. I thought that was a moving almost tribute uh, and, and a nice way to say that, hey, if the media wants to make it out that Florida fans are so ruthless, look how full our stadium is in the midst of one of our worst seasons ever. And instead turn on a Florida State game. And given all their recent success with the coach has been very solid for them, look how many people go to their games. So I thought that was a statement. And that's probably what I'm going to take away most from the UAB game. But Alan, to answer the question directly, I was surprised by that result. UAB, as we talked about on film study, was a team that had seven wins. They really only had one player that we thought was capable of competing at this level that Florida was at. And it looked that way on Saturday. And that was surprising because you've heard on this podcast week by week There's been multiple teams we've played where that really should have been the case, and it was not. So it was nice to see that happen, even though we still had our normal spate of problems, uh, scoring touchdowns and completing big plays and those sort of things. This was a nice result for this football team. I feel good for the kids that are playing. They've gone through a ton of adversity this year. These are predominantly freshmen and sophomores that are playing. These are 18, 19, 20-year-old kids. I'm sure it felt good for them to get that kind of positive win and that kind of positive atmosphere. And then we know, Alan, that these guys are sort of enjoying the coaching search as well, posting on Twitter, the sort of thinking face on Sunday night. So a good weekend (laughs) for them, a good weekend for them. I think it's nice. I think it was nice that Caleb accurately assessed that these guys would play hard. They would dig down deep and get it done, and they did. Um, Were you surprised by the result? I didn't get your prediction last week. I had no idea what you thought, so before the game and after the game, did it match up with what you kind of thought it might have gone like?
0: No, not at all. I thought this would be close if we won it. And seeming the way that, you know, we had handled the Missouri game, which was Missouri was, came ready to play and they were fired up. And I thought this was going to be the same thing for UAB, you know, despite their, you know, winning record and having a great season Even a a win against even a really struggling Florida team would be huge for them. And I thought they just might want it more. And I didn't know the state of our team with our injuries. If we're going to be able to respond. So I was surprised. Um, I thought the defense was lights out. They were amazing in that game. Those guys continue to compete. And I was really proud of them. A lot of young guys making plays Um, the offense, you know, having to muddle through so many different injuries Shuffling around the offensive line. I thought that was a genius move, putting Ivy at guard and kicking somebody else over at right tackle. Stone Forsythe, I think, played most of the snaps there. Um, keeping Kavar Sarkis off the field, because we have no guards essentially right now um, who are healthy because Tyler Jordan had to move to center. And so I thought they played well. I thought of running backs, of course, that got a lot of attention. They played really well. And I want to single out the young talent. If you watch this game, I, I was going to go through the list, but it's so many. How many young guys played a ton of snaps. You mentioned this so many freshmen and sophomores. And that was some of the concern is there's not a lot of senior leadership on this team. But those guys showed up and I think if you're the next coach, you have to look at a result like that and be encouraged. So many guys who are going to be coming back next year. Um, you know, unless things transfer or other, you know, things can always happen. But um I know a guy that popped for me. I'm sure did for you. Was Darius Lemon's a guy who had really not seen the field a lot, was behind Malik Davis, certainly behind Jordan Scarlett, um, coming into the year, and really hadn't seen that much playing time outside of some real mop up duty. But I like the way he ran. He ran with ferocity and athleticism that you know you don't see from some of the other guys, and and a little bit of size on him too. He's an intriguing guy. I, what about you? What did you think about his play?
1: Yeah, I thought he was very solid. I think the the primary difference there was what you noted with the offensive line. That was the best thing that happened last week. And I'm not sure who was, who was handling that, whether it was the O-line coach directly or Randy Shannon was part of the evaluation or who to give credit for. Of course, you would generally think the O-line coach. Uh, but regardless, masterful job. And something we've highlighted a lot, Alan, in our film study sessions and the X's and O's sessions and the game theory sessions is when you see... Poor play on tape, like we pointed out in this very podcast last week, in Harkless's play, you have to change that. And hats off to the offensive coaching staff for actually changing that and not just rolling <laughs> them out there and saying he's going to improve. Uh, they didn't, and I thought they they earned a result because of that. And I do want to highlight that, and I'm glad that you highlighted that, even though it's the midst of a season that doesn't necessarily matter anymore. Those are the kind of things that you and I look for. And the next coaching staff, those are things we will continue to look for from day one. It's making sensible, logical adjustments on the staff. Uh, I thought playing the young guys is also wise. There's been a narrative out in the media that Florida's team is not talented. Of course, I think our listeners know that we do not believe that. I think there's plenty of talent on this team. We have issues with depth, but I think there's frontline talent and a lot of position groups. Lemons is a three-star guy. He obviously displayed a lot of top-end speed in the game. Uh, it's hard to know like what does Malik Davis look like if he's running with those kind of gaps or windows. But needless to say, the way he was running and the way this team has handled its business, looking at a guy like David Reese sort of calling the team together, hearing Randy Shannon talk about how these guys are working hard, they're still out there grinding, uh, is great. I think it's great. I think it speaks a lot about these guys when they become juniors and seniors to have gone through something like this and have not folded in the tent. And that's got to be incredibly encouraging to a football coach because we've had guests on this very show who talk a lot about the most important thing the next coach has to do is change the culture or win over the players. And it sounds like you've already got a team with emerging young leadership that is hungry to win and wants to maintain doing the right thing for themselves and for others. And that has to be a sign that you have good team culture and team chemistry, despite – All the insane shenanigans that have gone on this season with the football team itself. And Lemons was a nice touch for a guy who's put his head down. He's worked hard. Nobody's talked about him. Here we are at the end of this dumpster fire season. And now he's getting himself some good plays on film and a little bit of excitement and notoriety. So excellent performance by him. He definitely deserves the kudos. I don't want to get too high on him now and say, oh, he's the next great thing. But he could yeah, certainly be a productive running back, which is what you want when you're drafting these guys or you're recruiting them, so to speak. He certainly has flashes of a guy who can play. And that means next year you can look at a combination of Lemmings and Davis and uh, you can start to build some some pretty exciting combinations, especially if you've got a guy like Chip Kelly in here who will run two running back systems. It's a lot of things you could do with that. And so it's definitely encouraging. And, and I, feel, I feel good for what I saw out of him. And I'm hopeful that he can maybe do something this week against Florida State. Uh, different challenge, but you know, why not?
0: Yeah. Uh, impressive showing by him again, it's UAB. And if this was not this type of season, you would totally write it off as just like, Oh, that was kind of fun. Look at him. But I think it's great for a guy who was, you know, reportedly unhappy in the middle of the season, understandably. So, um, that he wasn't getting playing time, or at least you can understand why he would feel that way. Even if he, you know, probably should have not tweeted something out. Um, so that that's hopeful for him, and it's good to get a guy like that rep. So hopefully he stays in the program during the transition. Let's talk about Felipe Franks for a minute, a guy we've talked about a lot on the podcast. It's, it's so funny to watch him play because he has these moments every game where he just basically flicks his wrist and the ball comes flying out and throws a beautiful ball in points and other times just looks so lost out there. I don't know that he's ever looked at anyone other than Brandon Powell on a third down. Um, he had some drop passes through some nice balls that were dropped by Hammond and Cleveland. Um, maybe some interference on a couple of those. What was your impression of his play overall?
1: Frank's continues to have exceptional, and I mean, exceptional arm talent. We've said it before. I'm going to keep saying it as much as the guy's got gaps in his other abilities. He is a raw project kind of guy from day one when we talked to Blake Alderman about him as a recruit we said this guy's not going to be ready to play I think I'd said for at least three years three seasons and this is season number two for him so I still think it's way too early I think fans that are judging him and writing him off are wrong this guy has an NFL ceiling now I have no idea if he's going to get there there's so many things he has to clean up and improve on there's a mental capacity issue with how smart he is how how football smart he is Uh, how well he can learn how to run an offense, make reads. There's lots of things he does not do well now. But one thing I can tell you for sure is there are very few people on planet Earth that have his arm talent. And if he could put together the other things, he's ahead of those guys. Again, large gap there now. Large gap there now. I'm not saying the Franks is the second coming of Tom Brady. I'm merely saying that he has tools in his toolkit. And you see that on display in some of these games. I thought there were a couple of plays this game, Alan, where he actually pivoted his hips and threw a ball on platform to maybe a second receiver. Uh, Again, he had a lot of time against UAB, which is not something we've had before, but I thought he showed that there. So there seemed to be some progress. The receivers definitely let him down with multiple drops. Uh, But at this point in time, you wonder, I wonder what Franks might become with better coaching. And that's my big thought now, because if I'm a coach, Heck, even my thoughts now on, on like air raid and other things. I've, I would love to get into a huddle with Felipe Franks and watch that guy practice for a week. Because like we've said on this show, there's a lot of fun things you could do in a vertical offense that would not be complicated for him to learn. And until I were to coach him and watch what was going on and make an assessment, you have to feel optimistic as a new coach that you can probably get this guy to figure a few things out. Now, if it's Chip Kelly's offense, that generally requires a really smart thinker uh, probably not Franks right now. He'd have to grow a lot in the year to get there. But I thought the Franks against UAB showed what we what we know about him. He has a high ceiling based upon his arm talent, and he he doesn't have the fundamentals or the technique of the position down even really at all. And that's what shows up. So encouraging, though, to see Franks continue to go out there and compete. He never complains in the media. He's a very nice guy whether that's because he's sort of just not all there recognizing what the reality is of being a quarterback or he's just actually a legit nice guy, the result is nice. I mean, he 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 competes. He continues to get back out there. He deals with the adversity. He does not seem to let it get him down. And those are all traits that are really admirable for a guy who's gone through a season like he's gone through. I mean, it's not easy, I think, to have to deal with what he's dealing with on a week-by-week basis, hear the critiques, hear the commentary, deal with losing and keep going out there. But hats off to him for going out there and fighting. And again, at this point in time, he's still limited. But Alan, this long rant was to basically say, don't give up on Franks yet. Also, don't assign Franks as like the potential quarterback of Florida. There's too many variables. But to to be on either end of that spectrum at this point in time, I think would be the wrong place to be on Franks. He's still a project. He still has to determine how good he's going to be.
0: Agreed 100%. And, yeah, did a couple nice things moving up in the pocket. Again, shows his arm talent. Who knows what that projects forward? We're going to talk about some of that when we do hire a coach. What do the guys on our roster have to look forward to? Are they a fit? Who's going to flourish? Who's going to maybe struggle? So we'll we'll lock all that stuff down if and when we hire a coach. Uh, Mentioned the defense's play already. Stellar by them. Really shut down that run game. You pointed out. Really, you know, perfectly that whoever was going to run the ball, the best was going to win the game. We ran the ball fairly well to very well for us and almost completely shut them down. What did you notice about the defense and what stood out to you?
1: I thought it was another really solid game plan. And I keep saying this and I think people keep getting frustrated by it. And not not the majority, but the minority of people. If we had the right players, the way we're playing defense is extremely solid. And I think that was on display against a UAB team that was that was that we made look really bad. But we actually did that to them on the offensive side of the ball. And that's because we had superior athletes. And this kind of goes back to the Alabama strategy or conversation or lots of other conversations about strategy in football in general is that a simple defensive strategy is not a bad one. And that a complicated defensive strategy is not necessarily a good or bad one either. Although some fans think that. Uh, And this team, when faced with talent that is beneath them uh, in this style of defense, I think throughout the season have done very well, despite some gaps and some struggles, despite the fact that they really don't have enough high level talent on the roster, especially at the linebacking spot. But as we mentioned, this UAB team could run the football and on the pod, I pulled out that key because that that really was the key. And it was not a guarantee to me, given our injuries, that we were going to stop the run like we did. That's a good running football team. Uh, and, and we did, and it was excellent. That was fantastic. And I thought that we pointed out that we should be able to run on UAB, but who really knows? And we did. And so I think we did the obvious things. And when you do the obvious things against a team that's overmatched, you win like we did. So it was nice to sort of get an expected result, Alan, because we haven't gotten a lot of those all season long. And even if it was UAB, it's still a, it was a difference From how we had been playing, although there were the hallmark similarities, kicking a lot of field goals, not scoring in the red zone as often missing some opportunities, like we mentioned, this game seemed to show a very soft general progression with this football team. And that's saying a lot, given that we're missing 25 plus scholarship players, we're playing against UAB at home, nobody really cares. That's saying a lot. That's saying a lot of those guys. And the defense to give the effort they did and to go out there and play like that uh, says a lot. It it says a lot about the coaches. says a lot about the job they're doing. They almost all know they're not going to be here anymore. So I'm proud of the professionalism being displayed here at the University of Florida in a time like this. I think it shows really good leadership, and I think it's good for the university to have this going on. And those are sort of my meta takeaways on the UAB game. Less about the performance in the game itself, much more about the culture being created. And I think that's going to do well for Randy Shannon as he goes to his next spot, whether he stays here or whether he goes somewhere else, I think that's going to reflect very positively on him that he has gotten this team to finish the season, the way they're finishing it, regardless of what happens against Florida state this weekend.
0: Yeah. I was going to say the exact same thing. A lot of credit to Randy Shannon and the rest of those coaches for getting these guys ready to play because especially on the defensive side, it's so much about effort and desire. And those guys really wanted to come out and win. And, you know, it's their first time at home in a while, and, yeah, a lot of respect for that process. These guys still have something that they want to play for. And, yeah, impressive showing by them. Again, not, not a flawless effort by our team, but, hey, we got some fumbles. You know, I've been talking about that for weeks, that we had not recovered a fumble all year. And we got two of them. So that really helps if you're going to try to win some football games. All right, let's talk about the slate of national games from last week. We've got a huge one coming up this week, rivalry, rivalry week, that we're going to spend a decent amount of time on. But let's go up and clear up last week, wrap it up, and then jump into the SEC roundup. The big one of the day, Michigan 10, Wisconsin 24.
1: Wisconsin controlled this game, although it was closed for a long time, but did not prove to me that they are an upper echelon team. I think Wisconsin's hard to beat, and I don't want to discredit them, and I want an eight-team playoff because of teams like Wisconsin. I think they and and a couple others that we're going to talk about today probably deserve a shot at this. I, I don't think it's right that you or I or a committee arbitrarily decides that they are not good enough because of the closeness of the scores on the scoreboard or the way they play. But Wisconsin is not a team that's going to wow you, but they beat Michigan at their own game. To me, that's expected. We said on on show one, Alan, that Michigan should struggle this year and that Michigan fans, for being as frustrated as they are with, with Jim Harbaugh right now, is just nonsensical. They lost almost all of their important players. They lost tons of NFL talent. They lost their starting quarterback. This is to be expected for a Michigan team this season. Uh, Wisconsin also was to be expected. It was not a surprise for them to be where they are. I thought this game played out almost exactly like you thought it would and it will be interesting to see what happens with Wisconsin in the championship game because that's going to really determine their fate.
0: Yeah, this is a game, as you look at it, I mean, it's a good, solid win for Wisconsin, but I don't know that it really tells us too much more than what we already knew about these two teams. I have a feeling Wisconsin is going to get smashed by Ohio State and that Ohio State might sneak their way back into the playoff. We'll have to see about that. A game that was really close for a long time, and I thought this would be a close one. Miami coming off just a huge win and playing a you know pretty mediocre but still competent Virginia team. So Virginia 28, Miami closes it out late, 44.
1: Yeah, surprising and misleading score. Virginia was up 14 nothing, then 28-14, and then 31-28, they were down. And then Miami tacks on sort of one at the end. We, high- we highlighted this game as the sort of pretender contender game for Miami. I think they they left it murky for me. They're certainly not a contender after a result like that against Virginia, but they are, they are maybe a pretender with sneaky upside. That Miami team showed a lot of character in that game. Virginia put them on 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 treacherous ice when it was 28,14, and they stormed back and won that game, dominated the rest of the game. That says a lot about their ability to win, and championship teams have that. They did not cover the spread. They did not dominate the game like a real championship has. I still feel like this is not their season for it. But certainly this Mark Richt-led Miami team is not showing similar signs to other Mark Richt-led teams in the past. This one seems to be different for whatever reason, Uh, and, and it will be worth watching, especially in their conference championship game against Clemson, which is going to really determine their fate to see what they can do. But this one, it didn't clear it up for me. I thought it would. And for a long time, I thought, aha, obvious Miami pretender. But I still think, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you know, wait for the Clemson result to kind of really weigh in on their season. But maybe they're one of those rare teams in college football that is able to win the games when they need to. They show up for the big event. I kind of doubt that given what I've seen style wise, but I'm not going to take this away from them. This was a good, gritty, come-from-behind win against a Virginia team that had upset written all over their minds.
0: Yeah, it was a good win for Miami. They didn't look great doing it, but this is the type of game you need to win. Somebody has to steal some of these. I think you're right. A Mark Rick-led Georgia team with probably a biff this game, but they've got something going on. I don't know that they're ready to compete at the highest, highest level. Now we'll see when Clemson rolls into town. Well, not rolls into town, but when they face each other in the ACC championship game, that's going to be a great game, I think. Scott Frost, UCF 45, Jeff Collins' is Temple team, 19.
1: Yeah, Temple well, Temple now moves to 5-6, and six, and Jeff Collins, who you know, much-beloved Florida defensive coordinator while he was here working with great talent, could not find a way to stop UCF. The UCF train rolls on. UCF was favored by 14 in that game. They easily cover. Just another really impressive result. For UCF, Uh, what Scott Frost has done this season is Urban Meyer-like good when Urban was at Utah. There's not many comparisons to how he's doing this. It's complete domination of, of opponents that are in the same category or even technically slightly ahead of UCF, you would assume, from a roster standpoint. So can't say enough about it, even if UCF is not going to play a single good team until they play a bowl game, in which case Scott Frost probably won't even be the coach. Or if he is, his mind will be elsewhere. So interesting to kind of see how this closes out. I don't see a scenario where UCF is a playoff team. It's it's just kind of impossible given their schedule.
0: Yeah, agreed. Uh, but impressive result from them. They've got a big game coming up next week. We'll get to that. Kansas State 45, Oklahoma State 40. Bill Snyder, man, the old the old man coming through with a big win here. I was not expecting this.
1: No, this was a surprise. Oklahoma State had a lot to play for. Yes, TCU controlled their own destiny, but Oklahoma State was right in there if they tripped up, and they tripped themselves up. I mean, Kansas State's a game team, a game opponent. I don't know how they scored 45 points. That's out of character for the Kansas State edition this season, but just one of those Mike Gundy results that you scratch your head at, and – I want to remind everyone that what Mike Gundy is doing at Oklahoma state is not normal. And that's why I think if he ever chose to leave, to go to a more hope high profile school, things could get very interesting. He has been exceptionally successful at Oklahoma state, but this is a result that I think you look at and say, okay, Kansas state's a nice team this season, but you can't lose this kind of game with what this meant, uh, especially at home in this situation late in the season, not a good loss, for Mike Gundy, and he's had a few of these in his career that always leave you to be like, ah, oh, I like Mike, I love the mullet, but there's something that doesn't get done that should get done at times, maybe more often than it does. So with that, let's take a look at the SEC roundup. There were not a lot of exciting SEC games last week. Shocker, the no. SEC's kind of been lame almost every week this year, but Bama beats Mercer 56 nothing. Blah, nothing to talk about there. Mississippi State plays a very close game against Arkansas and wins twenty-eight-twenty-one. A very typical Dan Mullen result, I think indicative of why Gator fans are very happy at this point in time that his name is not being mentioned.
0: Yeah, this is funny because they, I mean, come within inches of beating Alabama and then struggle against the Arkansas team that's getting obliterated, who's probably going to fire their coach. You know, Mississippi State just didn't have the talent to be up every week, and I guess they just fell flat, which you know happens with college teams. It's not like this is totally shocking that they would have a down game after Alabama, but it is kind of weird against a pretty bad Arkansas team, but I for Mullen's sake, at least he survived here with a win,
1: yeah, I needed that one there. Auburn beats Louisiana monroe forty two to fourteen This game was actually like fourteen to seven with ten minutes left to go in the third quarter, so another weird sort of Gus Malzahn sleepwalking half that either happens in the first half or the second half that frustrates the heck out of Auburn fans. But ultimately they get it done in the tune up, setting up a mega showdown this weekend. Uh, Exciting. Auburn. Yeah. Auburn, Alabama, always a good one, especially when it's like, like this one, Kentucky. <laughs> I just, I have to laugh. Like the SEC East, you just laugh reading these scores. Kentucky 13 Georgia 42. This was also a close game into the third quarter. Yeah, Kentucky, yeah. yeah, Kentucky was was game for this one. And then Georgia's running game just sort of stomped them out as as time went on. This is the same Georgia team we've seen all season. The blueprint, I think, for them will be easily coverable by Alabama. And if somehow Auburn is the one that goes, they've already sort of got the blueprint on Georgia. So I'm not sure what you feel like if you're a Georgia fan right now.
0: Yeah, it was probably a one year too early for Kirby Smart anyway. Like you said, they're ahead of schedule, but they just probably drunk the Kool Aid too much uh, after that number one, you know, committee ranking, and maybe they're having a sugar high meltdown right now. You know, coming off that high, so they're probably disappointed, but they shouldn't be. Uh, the future's still bright for them. This team's just not quite there yet.
1: Wofford up three, nothing on South Carolina eventually loses 31 to 10. Will Muschamp having, I think what is a very nice season for South Carolina. I think it's aided by the trash that is the SEC East, but regardless, I think a season South Carolina fans will happily take. Yeah. If you're, yeah, go for it. You have to
0: be above the trash, you know? I mean, if you Muschamp is at least somewhat capable as a coach, I don't think he's ever going to get them to an elite status. But this isn't totally surprising for me. The fact that the SEC is garbage and he's like winning those games. Now, an up SEC, I think he's in the bottom third to the bottom two. But he's able to win games against programs that are imploding. So he is a somewhat competent coach and you can trust him to do those things, mostly.
1: L- LSU, 30. Butch jones list, Tennessee, 10. Tennessee fought in this game. They fought for a long time, and LSU put him away. And Ed Orgeron, who on this very podcast we talked about, sort of seemed like the world was imploding on him. And maybe it would have if we had won that game like we should have won. But funny how a season can change. I'm not sure how LSU fans feel about that. I know how I would feel if I was an LSU fan. I'd feel bad. It's like a smoke and mirrors beginning. But either way, for them, they get the win uh tennessee fans focused on as you mentioned john gruden where is he at all times is he on campus is he somewhere else uh and just interesting times i think to be in the sec kevin sumlin texas a&m 31 over old miss 24 old miss five and six this season they've been a game opponent i think they've they've yeah. probably had a quietly good season if i'm an old miss fan i think yeah hey, this is not that bad i've kind of maintained the quo and Sumlin, it seems like Allen is out from all reports now, no matter what happens against LSU this weekend, he is going to be out as coach at AM. and And the rumor, Alan, is none other than Jimbo Fisher will be taking that job. Uh, Clay Travis reported this crazy. today. It is crazy, and we've chronicled this before. Jimbo Fisher does not want to be in Tallahassee, according to the reports, because of personal reasons. Those personal reasons have to do with his now-failed marriage and essentially his wife cheating on him with former Florida Gator Taylor Jacobs, amongst others. It's a long, convoluted story. Wow. You can read more about it online. But that's been the rumor for the past couple of years as to why Jimbo just wants to get out of Tallahassee. He wants a new start for himself. He wants to escape those memories. That's why these rumors have legs. But that's a big storyline, and it's going to continue to be one, I think, this week heading into the game. Lastly, Allen, Missouri, maybe the hottest team in all of the SEC, 45 vandy 17
0: yeah it's amazing that missouri has been able to turn around i did not see this coming i mean i guess there was some sparks at the beginning and then they seem to kind of fall apart in the middle third of the year and i don't know uh i don't love it that missouri is playing well i don't i don't know if i want a capable missouri team in the sec east when we're kind of struggling but um we'll see if they can continue on into the next year they've got a, a really good quarterback. And if he continues to play at a high level, I think they can continue to win games.
1: Yeah, this all has to do with with the skill of Drew Locke. He's sadly the only quarterback in the SEC right now that's capable of doing what he's doing. And that's undress base defenses. If you line up in a basic cover three or a basic cover two, he's going to run a route combination that will beat that. And he can actually execute that. We've talked about those kind of combinations on our show. We talked about it during the Missouri game. And it's sad that the SEC is in that kind of state of disarray to where these teams don't face quarterbacks that can punish them for running simple coverages. Uh, But he does that. And he's killing teams week by week uh, with how he does that. And it's fun. It's fun to watch it. They're probably the most fun SEC team to watch right now, which is crazy to say given the way they started. But they've had such a weird season. Hats off to Barry Odom for keeping that ship afloat. They're going to make a bowl game and uh, somehow resurrect what was just an incredible dumpster fire four or five games in. So with that, Alan, we're going to turn our attention now to Florida State. And we're going to talk about essentially this upcoming game. We're not going to have a Florida State guest. We're going to prime you for this on our own. We'll talk about the film study. We'll go through the injuries. We'll talk a little bit about the Florida-Florida State weekend nostalgically because you can't talk about Florida-Florida State without giving some of your memories the matchup. And then we'll give our predictions and get you set for all of the matchups that are coming your way this week. And there are many, many good ones.
0: James, before we get into the game itself and breaking that down a little bit, we got to talk about FSU rivalry, maybe the most hated for Gator Nation in general, but certainly the most toxic for me. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and it's very split loyalties between Florida and Florida State. And I think i've said this before in the pod but in the the 90s when i was in high school florida state won more than their fair share more than i wanted them to spurrier famously never won at doke that was a thorn in my side and i hate fsu i love a lot of the people there but i cannot stand fsu i want to see them lose it everything women's water polo doesn't matter james do you feel the same way
1: oh absolutely I absolutely do. I've never liked Florida State. I grew up in a household that rooted for Miami uh, because we lived right near the campus. My dad went to Maryland. He was a big Maryland fan. My whole family's from Maryland. There were no ties to Florida, but I was a tremendous hurricane fan. We went to all their championships in the late 80s. Used to just love the U. And so that means obviously you hated Florida State. And that carried all the way through me going to the University of Florida and becoming a Gator and and, and you know, selling out for that so Florida State's never been on my on my like list from the beginning and so it's easy to dislike them and and most of my memories I think center around when this rivalry was best when I was in high school and when I was in college for the early part of it when you had top 10 teams going against it and I just remember the energy walking into either Doak or Ben Hill when you had these teams that were both in the top 10 about to do battle and and It was really, I don't think I appreciated it back then, because you tend to think it's going to be that way forever, especially when you're younger. You don't have perspective like you do now. I long for those moments to walk into a football stadium as a fan, knowing that you're about to be entertained, but that it's this incredible battle. It's this intense rivalry, and it was so much fun. So much fun. And this game has been just robbed of that for years and years and years now. And it's really unfortunate. It's been a long time since this game meant anything really to anybody outside of either the Florida fans or the Florida State fans. There's been a few games that have been, you know, we're really good. Florida State's okay. But you haven't had that monstrous clash. And and those are the ones I remember, whether it's Peter Warwick stealing the Dillard's bag college game day being on campus, Mm -hmm. all the chance that went on that year. uh, We ultimately wound up losing to Florida state that season, but just an incredible, incredible game. And you could go on and on and on. So this game for me feels like it does for you, Alan. I want to win this game. I can't stand Florida state, but this season I am emotionally checked out. All of my emotions are on the coaching search and the next year. And the podcast, I think furthers that I don't want to say I don't care If we lose to Florida state, because that's not, that's not true. I will care, but I'm going to give the least amount of cares that I've given in a long time. And I don't feel bad saying that because both of these teams are just not good. It's nice to steal these though. These are the kind of wins in the rivalry that add up. They count for something and you sort of steal this win against your chief rival. And that's what this weekend is for me. I'm certainly not going to have some sort of amazing memory from this game. Even if we won in a last second heroic moment, it's going to be tainted because it means nothing. But I'd like to steal this game and put it in our ledger as opposed to having Florida state win yet another game over us, which by the way, they've won six of the last seven. I'm kind of sick of it.
0: Yes. That for me highlights this process. The whole in last half of the season for me will be redeemed emotionally. I think you know since we fired McElwain, if we can win this game, I care a lot. Mostly because I don't want them to add one more to their streak. What is it, three in a row now? Four in a row, something. One of those two. Um, Ever since the one Jeff Driscoll win, where he's kind of running all over them during our one good must champ year. But James, you're right about the intensity of this rivalry. And this is the moment that you kind of dream about as a college football fan. And I talk about this when I try to tell people what the Swamp can be like or what a major college football game can be like. I think that's unlike most sporting events around the world is electricity in the stadium with that many people and the buzz, especially for a night game. Just kind of ripples through you. It's really nothing like it. And you don't get that on TV. You have to show up and be there in the stadium, but it is sad. There's going to be about a quarter of that juice. Now these guys are still going to compete. They still probably have some feelings one way or the other. A lot of these guys know each other. A lot's made of that every year, but I really want to win this game. I'm much more emotionally invested, I think than you are now. It's not like it is in some years, but it definitely is there and hopefully be there for our players. And so, as we look at FSU, they are also down. And normally, this would be cause for great celebration if we did not have an even worse record than they do. So, they're at four and six. They are a five point favorite. Last week, they trashed Delaware State 77 to six. So, this is Jimbo Fisher's eighth year. He's 82 and 23. That's fantastic. And six and one against Florida. You know, I don't know that Florida State fans really appreciate the Jimbo Fisher era. Um, and really outside of that one truly magical year with James Winston, I like to think that the, maybe aren't, they aren't that good, <laughs> but I think that's my alternate reality. I'm living in with them. Um, they've been really excellent on the record, you know, on the scoreboard and in the record book, offensive coordinator, Randy Sanders. This is fourth year. Lawrence Dossey, uh, along with him in year four, they are struggling on offense this year below 100 in most categories, so they are sharing our pain in this. They're pretty balanced run pass. They normally run a fairly complicated scheme and system that had to tailor some of that with their injuries at quarterback. Defense of coordinator Charles Kelly, his fourth year. Fans are not really happy with him. I know there's a lot of question marks about both of these coordinators and people being somewhat frustrated to very frustrated. They're a decent defense. They have a lot of athletes, um, tend to be better at the pass than the run. They don't create a lot of turnovers, but they do have a lot of athletes on the field. There's still a ton of talent on this team. They've recruited really well under Jimbo Fisher. All right, let's talk about the injuries to the Gators. This is becoming kind of an insane list. Malik Zaire day-to-day, it's kind of funny that almost every quarterback on our roster is hurt, even the ones who aren't technically quarterbacks anymore, including Kadarius Toney. I don't know what would have happened if... Felipe Franks had actually gotten hurt on that play against UAB. What would we have done? Maybe we've seen some Dre Massey snaps. Jachai Polite, still limited. Juwan Taylor, the safety, not the lineman. So that's 25-plus scholarship players. That's an attrition you rarely see in college football. It's astounding, really. And that doesn't even include some guys who won't play because they're redshirting. So a nutty amount of attrition on this team. Thankfully, this is the last game. Maybe they can gut it out. James, when you look at Florida State, let's start with the offense. Tell me what they do and what they don't do.
1: Well, as you mentioned, Florida State normally runs a complicated offense that's amongst my favorite in all of college football. I love the Jimbo Fisher style of offense, especially in the college game. It's a pro style, but it involves a lot of backfield action, which I think is really smart in the college game would not work as well in the NFL. And I think Jimbo knows that, but really, really hard to stop when they've got stuff going. Justin Blackman is a three-star true freshman quarterback. I'm sure most of you are familiar with him in some world came out of Miami. Really, really skinny guy. He's six, five, probably a buck 70, $1.70, maybe a buck 75 at the most uh, has a really nice arm. will throw passes. He should not throw but his primary problem and the offense's primary problem is that their offensive line is absolutely horrible. It's just atrocious. It's one of the worst offensive lines you could imagine. They are almost dead last in college football at sacks allowed. Uh, and Florida, thankfully, were top 30 in sacks generated. They're also near the bottom. They're 112th in interceptions thrown. Florida's number two in interception percentage. Uh, and that's an important stat. So, when teams do throw, we pick it off second most in the country. So, that's a good matchup for us there. Uh, Cam Akers is their five star true freshman running back. He wears number three. Extremely, extremely solid running back. Uh, this is the guy that, if they get the offensive line corrected, you'll be hearing about him a lot more in the coming years as he plays at Florida State. But the big question mark for Florida State last year in this way is that offensive line. It will be the determining factor in this game, as it is each and every week for them. They came back against Clemson and had a a, a heck of a chance to really be in that game or win that game thanks to some opportunistic turnovers and the defensive side of the ball. But ultimately, the the lack of protection on the offensive line did them in. And Justin Blackman does not necessarily protect himself or the football super well. So that's a main storyline on offense. Uh, You will still see a lot of unique personnel sets where they have two running backs or two tight ends in the game. They will offset their tight end. They will send their tight ends and their running backs out on routes. But this is a far, far cry from what we saw on film last year when it was being run by DeAndre Francois, who's much better and they could employ all of their tactics. And they had Dalvin cook. This is a training wheels offense compared to that, which is why their numbers have been so, so bad. Uh, But even then, Alan, I want to attribute sort of all of this disaster that's going on at Florida State this year to Jimbo's personal life, which we alluded to earlier. I think the best narrative for why this Florida State team is so bad is that Jimbo's mind has been in a state of, of mental anguish for a couple of years now uh, because his personal life has definitely bled over to how he's built this roster. They have recruited very well in the top end, but there's been some gaps, and I think a lot of that's just been due to Jimbo's own sort of recurring nightmare there in Tallahassee, personnel-wise, I mean personally, with regards to his own life. So that's something that's bleeding over now into the season, and maybe that's why he wants to get out, if he in fact does. On the defensive side of the ball, Florida State, very similar to us, a lot of 4-3, a lot of nickel, a lot of dime. Unlike us, they blitz all the time. That's one of the staples of the defense. This is also what I think really hurts them. They have a really weird defense statistically. They're absolutely underachievers given their talent, Allen. There's no doubt about that. Florida State fans have a right to be frustrated with what this defense is putting on film each week. And they also have a very funky sort of statistical output. Like I mentioned, they hold teams to an extremely low yards per pass stat, which typically means you have an excellent pass defense, but they don't. They don't get picks. They don't get sacks. They have a negative turnover margin as a team. It's really sort of odd uh, because when you watch them on film, they have all the playmakers they would need. Uh, They just can't seem to put it all together. And a lot of this has to do with teams game planning against them being more conservative than normal. But even then, there's something about this defense that isn't quite right, given the number of four star players they have across the board with, with a couple of five stars mixed in. And that's something that obviously you hope this weekend Florida can take advantage of. Although I have next to no confidence that'll be the case because of what we've seen all season. So this, this is really a matchup of mirror teams. If you're Florida state, you can argue, I think successfully that it's more frustrating for them this year than us. If you're a Florida fan, you can argue that we are more frustrated because we've had eight years now of this, whereas Florida State's sort of entering into this right now in this one year scenario, but the the statistical answer is both of these teams are amongst the bottom in college football in a wide variety of rankings, which really, frankly, Alan, in my opinion, should just never happen with the amount of talent that you have here. Your bad years should be where you're ranked maybe in the 50s or the 60s. But to have so many statistical rankings in the 80s or worse in the bottom third of college football is, is unfortunate, to say the least, for both of these programs coming into this game on Saturday at noon by the way, which is also unfortunate.
0: All right, let's get to the keys to victory in this game. I'll go ahead and start. I think it's going to come down to what kind of pressure do we create um, on, from our defensive line against their offensive line. It's available to us. We talked about how bad they've been in sack in allowing sacks. The fact that they throw picks, which we do take advantage of. We have, some defensive backs who will make plays on the ball. Encourage to see Chauncey Gardner make a play on the ball as a safety position this, this past week. So do we create turnovers? Do we create fumbles, which we did last week? Do we get picks? I, that's if we win that matchup and not just we like do well in that area, do we win it decisively and do we win the game at that position? I think that's going to be everything for me. And you know what? Eddie Pinheiro, let's kick some 50-yard field goals. He can do it. Just let him try. He showed it. He's never. He's not going to miss it unless there's a bad snap. So do we steal some points? I hate kicking 20-yard field goals. I love kicking 50-yard field goals. Let's do a couple more of those.
1: Yeah, fun fact. Florida is now number one in field goal conversion rate at 94%, which is extremely high for a college football team. And that's obviously attributable to Eddie And you can give some props to the holder and the line, but primarily Eddie is getting that conversion rate. So if it came down to a field goal, which unfortunately, so very few games have come down to, uh, Eddie gives you the advantage. I think the keys to victory for me this week are twofold. Last week I had a onefold, this week I have a twofold. And the first is going to be how well we are able to generate pressure against Florida State. The teams that have tremendous success against them blitz them. You sort of have to blitz them because that's how they get confused. Florida State does all right if you just bring four guys. That offensive line's not good, but in the case of Justin Blackman, he can sort of move in the pocket well enough that it's okay for him. What really cripples them, whether you look at the Boston College film or the Clemson film or a variety of other films, is when you bring any kind of blitz with your linebackers that is even remotely disguised, He does not see it. The offensive line does not see it. He takes big shots and he makes bad passes. Now that's something we have not really done all season long. And when we've tried to do it, we have gotten absolutely punished for doing it. I'm not sure what the game plan will be this week. I continue to maintain as I have in this very podcast that while I would love to play some more man and blitz, the reality is our linebacking core. That is a very, very dangerous game of seemingly Russian roulette. So that's going to be something to watch. If our blitzes are able to get home and have effectiveness, put hits on the quarterback, generate incomplete passes, maybe even a pick. I think you can see Florida's defense dominating this game. If we are only able to play coverage and we have to continue to rush just four, I think Florida state will be able to score 17 to 23 points in this game, which will make this game much different uh, in complexion on the offensive side of the ball. I think that given how Florida State defends, we're going to have trouble moving the ball. Uh, we're going to have, at times, maybe extreme trouble moving the ball, but this is a game where Tyree Cleveland can beat Florida State deep. This is this is a game where Franks can take advantage of some of those one-on-one matchups and we can steal a few points in that regard. We should be able to run the ball with some success against Florida State. So my first key on defense is blitzing getting home. My second key on offense is going to be big plays. I think if we can generate just three plays of 20 plus yards, we will win this game. So look for three plays of 20 plus yards and then look for our blitzing on defense. Do we get home when we add pressure in key downs? If those two things happen, I think you see Florida win. If one happens and one doesn't, I think you see it come down to the wire. And if neither happen, I think you see Florida state walk to a comfortable victory in this game. That for me, Allen is what sums up this contest on Saturday. With that, I want to know what your prediction is. We know what the keys are. Who is going to win?
0: Well, I'm taking into account some of the non-tactical factors here. You mentioned the game is at noon. It's at home for Florida. I think this is a game that our players want more than FSUs. I think this is a chance for them to show that they're potentially on FSUs level. And I don't know what kind of motivation FSU really has in this game, especially if they have the feeling that their coach is about to jump ship. Randy Shannon, like we talked about, you know, has done a good job of keeping this team together. Now, if we had come out flat against UAB, I would predict us to win, to lose by like 20. But I think we can win this game, and I'm actually going to predict us to win it. I'm going to say 20 to 17.
1: 2017 Florida wins. Is that a late Eddie Pinheiro field goal to break a tie or what, what is that?
0: That's a interception ceiling uh, play by Marco Wilson to down them in the last minute. I like it. I like that.
1: I said Florida state was going to win from preseason. I maintain that when all the chaos went down and I'm going to stick with it now and it, it pains me, but I don't think the UAB game absolved us of our offensive problems. Doug Nussmeier is still our coordinator, and he is the worst offensive coordinator that I have seen, and I'm including Steve Adazio in that. That's because I think Steve Adazio was more figurehead than he was offensive coordinator, but he's just awful, so I expect that to rear its head this weekend. I expect it to be hard for us to score points. It just seems it seems difficult to pick the Gators, but Alan, you picked the Gators for the right reason. I think that the reasons you gave are the reasons why Florida will win. If they do win, uh, athletically, you can make a, a very valid argument. The Florida state is more athletic than we are, especially with their much healthier depth chart. And both of these teams are starting very inexperienced quarterbacks. Although Felipe Franks is not nearly as turnover prone as Justin Blackman is. So, what do you do when two teams are mirrors of each other, Alan? You pick the one with the emotional success on their side. Good job picking Florida. I like that. I just can't do it. I think Florida State wins this game <laughs> by a score I feel like I've picked like a million different times, but like 23 Florida State, <laughs> 17 Florida, and that just feels like we can't score more than 17 points <laughs> against a team that has any real competence. Man, I hope that's not the case. I hope that your prediction is right, and next next Monday we come on this show. And we talk about how wrong I was in my prediction and how emotionally high this team was because I am with you. I want to win this game. Uh, this, is, this is something that matters with regards to the Florida-Florida State rivalry. And it would sure be nice next year to go into the game saying, we've got one win in a row and not we've lost five in a row. That would be atrocious and disgusting.
0: All right, let's get to the rest of the national games. Again, this is rivalry week. I have a lot of time, a lot of difficulty saying that. So there's a bunch of fun games. There's a lot of games, too, that didn't just make the cut because one of the teams is down when they normally aren't. But a hugely fun slate. Let's start and talk about what would have been a good game had not your boy, Will Greer, broken his hand. So West Virginia versus Oklahoma. I think this has been a fantastic game, and unfortunately I don't think it will be now.
1: Oh, I am so sad, so sad that Will Greer in the first quarter of the loss to Texas last week broke his finger and is out four to six weeks. First of all, they, they lost handily to Texas, 28-14. And second of all, they are now 21-point dogs to Oklahoma. I can assure you that if Will Greer was healthy, they would have beat Texas last week. And this point spread against Oklahoma may have been as low as a touchdown. And that means that it's pretty safe to say that Will Greer is probably the most valuable Vegas point spread guy in the country, which says a lot about just how good Will Greer is. Uh, but we got robbed of a game that I had been looking forward to for two months now with Baker Mayfield versus Will Greer. That was going to be a college football game that was must-see television. And we're bringing it up on this national slate so I can mourn because <laughs> those two guys are so much fun to watch play the college football quarterback position. We got cheated out of this one. And now it becomes a game it's not worth watching. Really, really unfortunate in this regard. Now, Alan, before we go to our next game, a lot was made of Baker Mayfield's gesture on the field and how this was very, whatever you want to call it, insert your favorite word about it, not a good thing to do. And he should be punished accordingly for doing so. And yada, yada, yada. What are your thoughts on Baker Mayfield's gesture? Does this happen? in college football and we don't know about it? Or is this, this is like a really isolated incident.
0: Well, first of all, Kansas started this game by not shaking his hand. So I think he was probably pretty riled up. He's an emotional guy. Someone put together like a supercut of like similar gestures being made by like a million players. I think this is only being highlighted because he's Baker Mayfield and he's the most, you know, obvious candidate for the Heisman this year. He's kind of a controversial guy. He does some things that are a little outlandish, like plant the flag at Ohio State. This is the biggest non-story ever, and it's only a story because it's Baker Mayfield.
1: Yeah, as a Heisman winner, I would like to think that once upon a time, that mattered to the Heisman committee and that you needed to handle yourself with a certain level of respect that went beyond what was expected of you. So as opposed to looking at the norm and saying, this is what the average guy does. Therefore, I'll do it. You were expected to be better than that. But I also recognize that in the society we live in, character and integrity has has really gone away in sports. In fact, the argument now is I don't really care what kind of human being you are outside the lines. Just play somewhat within the rules and win. And that's unfortunate to me. And I don't think Baker Mayfield's a bad guy. That's not what I'm saying. But I would like to think that there was a world where a guy like Baker Mayfield would realize the mantle that he had. And in the moment when he feels disrespected, which he certainly was, he would handle himself as though the original leaders of the sport would have wanted to have handled themselves. And again, this is like sort of a an offshoot of just thoughts on sports in general. Uh, but hopefully Baker Mayfield learns from this and doesn't just think, hey, the cameras are always on me. I should monitor my behavior. That's not the right answer. The right answer is, hey, I'm out here. A lot of people are watching me. I should want to ascribe to be the best human being I can be. And if I allow the other team who's one in nine to influence me into making a vulgar gesture, I'm not winning. But again, that's a dream scenario in James's ethical world. Uh, But side note with regards to that, and I think you're right, Alan, in that this is not a unique gesture to Baker Mayfield. And they are picking on him more so than what other players do, but to whom much is given much as required and expected. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see a world where that sort of existed once again.
0: Ah, very noble of you, James. That was, <laughs> you made us both sound super old talking about that, I think. But you're right. I would like the Heisman Committee to hold players to a high standard. But when you give the award to players like Jameis Winston and Cam Newton, obviously that's not the top priority. Okay. USF. Maybe the darling of the, the group of five world up against their rival UCF, UCF is eleven point favorite. What are you taking in this game?
1: Yeah, this is it, right? This is like the this is the non power conference Super Bowl, and this is a game where people want to watch it. And UCF gets an eleven point spot at home. A very very interesting matchup. I think USF has been very underwhelming, and UCF has been very overwhelming. And and this is the biggest game without a doubt for both coaches this season. And it's a chance for Scott Frost yet again to beat another coach on the resume of people's sort of hot list coaches uh, and really cement a sensational year. Uh, From watching both of these teams, UCF is absolutely a better football team. I think they're a much better football team than USF is. I don't think that USF has the defense to be able to match up with UCF. Uh, I think UCF should win this game comfortably, but you never know. There's a lot of pressure on this game. For obvious reasons, and that could change to tend tend to change the complexity. I think there's a lot less pressure on Charlie Strong now, which was interesting because entering into this season, Allen, as you mentioned, USF was supposed to be the one in this position, coming through a hurdle game against UCF, and it's kind of flipped the script.
0: All right, are you taking UCF?
1: I'm taking UCF to comfortably win this one. Yeah, I think they'll. I think UCF will cover that 11 point spread.
0: I agree. I think they're going to be able to outpace USF. This game might start a little close, but I think by the end of it, UCF will win comfortably. I think they'll pull away late. Um, they just have too much firepower on offense, and I can't see UCF, USF excuse me, holding onto them that late. Okay, Clemson, a 14-point favorite at South Carolina. Can the Fighting Must Champs pull a shocking upset?
1: Remember when the old ball coach beat Dabo Sweeney every year? because I do. Yeah. Right. That was, those are fun times and how we talk about it every year, how Dabo couldn't beat him. I <laughs> just want to highlight that for a moment. Cause that was pretty enjoyable, especially now that Dabo's like on top of the world. Uh, this South Carolina team is a cute team, but they're not in Clemson's league. And this is not a great Clemson team, but all they do is win. 14 points feels maybe too soft because I think the SEC East is really sucky. So based upon that alone and not Clemson's own sort of like impress me tactics. I'm going to say Clemson covers that spread, but maybe Will Muschamp has got more fight than I'm giving him credit for.
0: Yeah, I'm going to take the points here, and it's mostly because it's a rivalry game, and that South Carolina, I think it's feeling frisky at this moment during the season. I think they come into this game playing pretty confident, and they just tend to play Close games. Now, they could get smashed, and that would not surprise me at all. But if I have to pick here, I'm going to take the points. Okay. Notre Dame, who's fallen from such great heights, a two-point favorite versus a Stanford team that a little bit.
1: I feel like Stanford is going to win this game. Uh, Notre Dame is impossible to get a beat on what they're doing or or how good they are. They, They snuck one out against Navy, who's a good team, last weekend. Stanford is hard to beat. Their quality football team, they're not as good as they've been, but I feel like Stanford's going to win this one at home in a, in a rivalry game. And I kind of want you to just keep saying the word rivalry because it's a lot of fun. So feel free to keep throwing it in there as we go through the rest of these games.
0: Rivalry. Uh, yeah, I'm going to take Stanford as well. Bryce Love is electric. But Stanford's been better since they started playing KJ Costello instead of Keller Christ at quarterback. I don't know why it took them so long to just to go to him full time. Um, I could see Notre Dame winning this game. This, I mean, the fact that it's a two point spread should tell you everything here, but Stanford seems like the picker at this moment, the Apple cup, Washington state go into Washington. Washington's a nine point favorite. This, the winner of this game sneakily has an outside shot at the playoff. Um, And that's surprising when you consider that one of those teams is the Cougars. But Still nationally, as well as it being a heated contest. Who are you taking here?
1: This nine-point favorite for Washington seems crazy. I watched, as I always watch, the Pac-12 after dark games. It's like my favorite guilty pleasure. And Washington should have lost to Utah. That was a minor miracle that Utah gift-wrapped them that game. And this is not a good football team. I've watched several of Washington's games, and they're just not that good. Washington State has the capability to be really good on certain Saturdays and also really bad. And I think that's why you're getting the nine-point line on Washington is Washington is consistent, and Washington State is unpredictable. But in a line like this, I'd rather go with unpredictable. I feel like Washington State's had a better year. I'm going to go with them and the nine-point cushion or spread that they are giving me uh, with which to play with. So Washington State and the points.
0: Yeah, I'm going to take Mike Leach here. This feels like a game that Washington State is going to be able to score on Washington. It's hard to know what you're going to get from Washington. I don't know, because on paper they should win this game, but just a feeling I have. I'm going to take the Cougs in this one. All right, Ohio State, Michigan. Are we going to get the Ohio State that crushes some people or who gets blown out by Iowa? They're an 11 point 11 and a half point favorite at Michigan. What are you taking?
1: This is a, this Ohio state team is, is complicated. And Caleb and I talked about it last week. I'm going to take Ohio state in this game for the reasons I mentioned. Wisconsin should have beaten Michigan. Ohio state is not Wisconsin. This is a game that Michigan could stop Ohio state and JT Barrett. It's absolutely possible that that could in fact be done, but JT Barrett has shown signs of turning the corner and he doesn't have to turn the corner all the way. He just has to turn his head around the corner and see, and that'll be enough. I think to get by this current Michigan team. So I'm going to take Ohio state 11 and a half feels maybe kind of high, but I feel like Michigan's in a really weird spot right now, emotionally fan base wise, rumor wise. So, even though I don't necessarily love this Ohio State team, I'm going to say that they cover that spread against Michigan, just maybe based upon the state of the Michigan camp.
0: Yeah, this is a little high for me, but Ohio State has the potential to blow some people out. And Michigan, I don't know, that offense just didn't really show up against Wisconsin enough for me to be able to pick them in this game. So, I'll take Ohio State, even though the 11 and a half feels kind of high. All right, the Iron Bowl is here. It's back better than ever maybe. Auburn a four excuse me, Alabama a 4 point favorite at Auburn
1: about this game. This is tricky for me. I knew that Alabama was missing all of its linebacking core heading into the Mississippi State game, and I knew that that was going to affect a school like Alabama. However, I may have underestimated the talent gap between the number one and two linebackers and the number five and six linebackers, which I knew was large. Admittedly, I'll be the first to say that there's a big difference between starters and, and guys that are on your depth chart, but it's, it's very, very significant. And Auburn is a team that can expose your linebackers. Their entire offensive playbook is built on attacking linebackers. The history of this game tends to be one that's close tends to be one that's funky. And now Alabama comes in missing a lot of key linebackers. They struggled against Mississippi State. Auburn is a better version of Mississippi State. So therefore, you would think this game would be close. I have learned a couple of things in life. And that is that if the spread is small, you bet on Alabama always. Because Alabama almost always wins. So because of that, I'm going to bet on Alabama Minus four against Auburn. But there are plenty of reasons to like the other side of this bet.
0: Yeah, I'm going to take Auburn here. I think that their offense is going to give Alabama some trouble. And I also think that Auburn's defense, if they keep Jalen Hurts in the pocket, which, you know, many teams struggle to do, and he always breaks the big run. You know, I, I don't know. I like Auburn here. I think this is a game that, they're going to be able to steal some points with big plays. And I don't know that Alabama is going to be able to generate the offense to keep up with them. Now, you're right. Betting against Bama is off, often foolish. But I, I like this matchup for Auburn this year. And I think Jared Sidham could play well in this game.
1: Well, that leaves us with just a couple of remaining items here for this Thanksgiving episode of the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Alan, what day will the new Florida football coach be signed. And who will that coach be?
0: Oh man, a little prediction here. Okay. Well, I will say that he's gonna be hired and announced Monday, a week from today. And if I have to put money down, I'll I'll say Chip Kelly. But I think even if it's Scott Frost, I think he gets announced that day. If it's not Monday and it's not one of those two guys, it might slide on a little bit, and that means we're in trouble. And I don't like that. So it needs to be Monday for me to feel happy about this.
1: What about you? I like that. I'm going to go Sunday, Chip Kelly. And I'm going to go Sunday because they want to get the jump on Cyber Monday so that everyone can go out and buy all of their new Gator gear when they're super excited that Chip (laughs) Kelly, who will do his press conference on Monday, by the way. But I think the announcement that Chip Kelly is the head coach, broken by all the major news sources, confirmed by the university, will be on Sunday. Monday, there will be a press conference, and Cyber Monday will be a huge hit with Gator fans everywhere. I also echo your thoughts, Alan. If there is not a coach named by that Tuesday at the latest, we've got problems, and we are probably down to coach number three on the list. And as all of you listeners know, it gets really murky as to who the right coach number three is. So that's hopefully not a problem that we're dealing with. Okay. Last item on the ledger for today's show. Gator basketball is three and O what are your thoughts on the team thus far?
0: Yeah, it's been really cool to watch the team for far. I haven't got to see any of the games, but I am stoked like you about Igor Kulichov. Uh, you wanted my pronunciation last week. Three is What I assume most people call him. His stroke looks so pure I mean, the ball barely even touches the net. Um, they won again last game without shooting very well. That's a good sign. But I'm really, really high on this team. I think they could just obliterate a lot of the teams on their
1: schedule. Yeah, super fun team to watch. And against New Hampshire, really struggled. I mean, just prolifically struggled from the floor and still beat a New Hampshire team that will be decent. That's not a horrible basketball team. And And when you shoot that poorly and you can still win, that's a great thing. That's a great sign. And another trademark of Mike White is that we close games out, unlike Billy Donovan. I think his Achilles heel is not closing games out, and that game was close. It was a two-point game. We closed that out and won by a comfortable margin. So a lot of things I think you would have wanted to have the team experience they experienced in that game, but this team is going to be tremendously fun to watch. I think the UNF coach said after we beat them, and UNF had played Michigan and Michigan State, that Florida was in a different category. The things they could do to you just weren't like those teams. And I just think there's a ton of excitement around this program. We chronicled it last week. I've gotten several requests from listeners to do uh, maybe an X's and O's style segment on the basketball court with regards to the Gator B-Ball team. And maybe we'll do that. If that's something you're interested in, certainly hit us up on Twitter, on Facebook, on Patreon, and let us know if that's something you'd like us to do. And then we'll consider carrying that forward maybe on a, on a monthly basis, sort of giving you the snapshot on what's going on, what the strategy is and how it works, just like we do with football. As always, if you like the content, you can drop us a like on Facebook. You can financially support us on Patreon. Uh, We've got several hundred supporters, and every single one of you matters tremendously to us. If you want to join them, you can. Links are on all of our pages. And Alan, with that, I'm glad you're back this week. I had fun with Caleb last week, but of course the original magic is between you and I and take us home
0: so good to be back on the pod thanks everybody who listens and hopefully we'll be talking to you guys after a huge gator win against the dreaded fsu signals see you next week
1: I love desk. Brick, are you just looking at things in the office and saying that you love them? I love lamp. Do you really love the lamp, or are you just saying it because you saw it? I love lamp. I love lamp.